Welcome to California Groundbreakers, which focuses on the place that starts trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done nationwide and around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. We've created a podcast series called This Changes Everything, which focuses on what California will look like in the post-pandemic future. We're talking with California groundbreakers about how they see the Golden State changing for the better or for the worse, or still to be determined, as we move out of shutdown. We want to give special thanks to Groundbreaker member Cheryl Mather for her financial support of this podcast series. If you like what you hear, please help us by making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support Us link on our SoundCloud podcast page or on the Donate tab of our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. Silicon Valley has always been the global hub of technology, and in the past 18 months, it has made the tools that allowed Americans and the American economy to survive the pandemic. Right now, the California tech industry is triumphant and flush with profits in a time when so many people, businesses, and even other countries are struggling to keep it together. What will Silicon Valley do with all this power? And who, if anyone, can restrain tech and its potential to dominate the way we live our lives? Join us as we talk with Cindy Cohen, Executive Director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, an international nonprofit in San Francisco that has been defending digital privacy, free speech, and tech innovation for 30 years. She'll tell us what big tech and Silicon Valley are doing, and should be doing, when it comes to misinformation, consumer data, cyber attacks, dealing with Congress and the FBI, and more. Hi everyone, I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm Executive Director of California Groundbreakers, and thank you for tuning in today. So, even as more than 600,000 Americans have died in the past year and a half, and the Delta variant is surging now, and businesses like restaurants and movie theaters and gyms have shut down and gone out of business, and millions of workers have lost their jobs, there is one industry that has flourished, and that is the technology industry. And as we know, much of the tech industry is based here in California. So I read in a recent New York Times story that the combined stock market valuation of big tech, those are companies like Apple and Alphabet, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, and Tesla, is now over $10 trillion. Apple alone has enough cash to give a $600 stimulus check to every person in the United States. And right now, as I'm talking in this last week of July, the big tech companies are expected to report corporate earnings that will surpass those from years past. And there are plenty of Silicon Valley startups still going public. More of them did IPOs or SPACs, that's the new term, last year during the peak of the pandemic than they did in 2019. Forbes magazine calculates that there are now 365 billionaires who got their fortunes from tech. That's up from 241 before the virus hit. With 18 months or so of Amazon Prime, Zoom calls, Netflix streaming, and TikTok videos, technology dominates our lives, maybe more so in a way than ever before and how we communicate, shop, learn, and seek entertainment and distraction during these tough times. So Silicon Valley has a lot of power and a lot of profits, which is frankly, to me, a little scary. But it also has a lot of challenges to face right now, too. The Biden administration and Congress want to crack down on big tech now in a way they haven't done so before. Tech also has to show us how they're dealing with issues like combating misinformation online, securing our data privacy, and fighting against cyber attacks from global thieves and global governments. Can the tech industry handle all these challenges, and can we trust them to do all of this the right way? 
we're going to ask questions about this to someone who watches the tech industry like a hawk, and that is Cindy Cohen. She's the executive director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is headquartered in San Francisco. Its mission statement is to make sure that technology supports freedom, justice, and innovation for all the people of the world. And the foundation has been questioning the tech industry, pushing back, and raising legal challenges against it since 1990, and it is officially celebrating its 30th anniversary of protecting people's digital freedoms. So, Cindy, happy anniversary. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. So, I want to start off with, with more of a personal question um, to you as an individual consumer and user of technology. Um, during this past year and a half of the pandemic, I wanted to know, on a personal level, how technology has been a boon to you and personally how it has maybe been a bane to you during this time. Well, I mean, I think for a boon, I think it's it, it's been a lifeline. It's been a lifeline to my family. It's been a lifeline to my friends, you know, especially during the, the time of the lockdown, um, the months of the lockdown. It was literally, if it hadn't have been for technology, I don't know how I would have kept in communication with my loved ones, um, you know, in the city, but also, you know, across the country and around the world. And I think that it brought home for a lot of us how important our digital communication tools are, um, whether it was, you know, telehealth, um, you know, I, I had some medical stuff and telehealth really was, was critical, um, but also just, you know, keeping in touch with my, you know, little posse of girlfriends, um, as well as family members and people who were, um, uh, far away and, and we had to, to be physically apart. So I think, you know, I don't think I'm unique in this. I think that all of us realized that, um, you know, I really, I'm so thankful that, for instance, video technology, video conferencing got to the place where we could actually see each other, uh, even if we were apart, before this pandemic hit, because I think it really it really helped me get through it. Um, and I think, again, I'm, I'm not alone in that. What's What has been the bane, the main bane? Well, I think the bane, and I'm not sure it's technology's fault, but, you know, uh, uh, I'm an extrovert and we extroverts really got hit hard by this pandemic. <laughs> um, and there were some things technology couldn't do. Um, and uh, and so uh, I would say that's my overarching thing. I'm not sure that's particularly technical. I mean, I think the bane is that the technology still isn't quite good enough um, and that it's not widely spread. You know, I think that it's been really frustrating. You know, EFF was forced to be a instantly distributed organization. We did it pretty well. Um, but it there are certainly things I would point to as it could have gone a lot better if, you know, uh, everybody had access to um, real broadband in their homes all the time. You know, uh, you know whether the 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 internet infrastructure really wasn't up to the levels that we all needed it to be. Now, you know, there's some good news in that front, both nationally and um, and here in California. Um, but it shouldn't have taken a pandemic for us to recognize that broadband, real broadband access, is something that everyone deserves and needs. And I'm going to ask you about that a little later in the conversation. Because um, there's plenty of uh, hot topics here that I'm going to ask you about. Uh, the first one I'm going to start with is about what's going on now with the pandemic and the Delta variant. I looked at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and I'll just going forward, I'll just say EFF, um, mm -hmm. how you were looking at and addressing technology uh, during the time of COVID-19. And I saw that the foundation opposes vaccine passports, immunity passports, and verified credentials of test results. 
And I still see this conversation now, especially with this discussion about the percentage of people who are vaccinated, not vaccinated, and the debate of who has the right to go where, uh, with masks, without masks, uh, who should get vaccines, should they be mandated, and so forth. And I'm wondering with all these discussions, has has the foundation's stance changed at all on this discussion of passports, immunity passports? And part two is, you know, what role does technology play or should technology play in a public health issue like this current one? Well, you know, EFF doesn't oppose, you know, um, a traditional kind of paper proof of vaccination or even like a photograph of your paper vaccination as something that people might choose to have as um, proof of people being vaccinated. I mean, you have to step back and figure out what's the problem you're trying to solve with one of these passports. And the problem you're trying to solve with one of these passports is people lying about whether they're vaccinated or not. Um, now, that's probably a problem, but I'm not sure that it, the, 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 that it's as big a problem as people, you know, making a different choice about whether to get vaccinated or not. And um, so I guess I, one of the things I, I worry about with tech and especially um, here in California is that often um, if there's a problem in the world, the tech world tries to run in and solve it with tech um, but they might not be solving the problem that we really have. Um, so, for instance, contact tracing, like there was a whole lot of energy at the early part of the COVID things about technical solutions for contract, tra- technical additions for contact tracing. Um, and a lot of energy, a lot of time, a lot of money was put into trying to build contact tracing apps. They ended up being almost, you know, Uh, marginally useful is the kindest thing I could say, right? The problem wasn't that people didn't have, um, the the problem that we were trying to solve was was how do we uh, find out whether we've been exposed to COVID or not. But it turned out that COVID was moving so fast through our societies that contact tracing, a digital contact tracing was pretty useless. Manual contact tracing could be helpful, but instead we put all our money into tech rather than putting our money into humans who could help us do contact tracing. And then the thing overwhelmed us and contact tracing didn't become very important in the end at all because the virus just ran wild and trying to figure out where somebody got it from became increasingly irrelevant. To the conversation. So um, with the with the the you know, they call them passports, we kind of call them digital bouncers, right? Like somebody who's gonna check your papers before you can come into a place. Um, you know, that's that's fine. If it's helpful to people to take a look at the piece of paper that we all got or a photograph of the piece of paper that we all got, um, EFF isn't really we don't feel that strongly about it, but what people are developing are tracking and surveillance mechanisms that they're trying to sell to us as helping us with COVID, um, you know, catching people who are lying about whether they've been vaccinated or not. But these things have a lot broader uses than that particular use. They're not particularly better at the one use, which is, you know, is it better to show somebody a picture of your vaccine card or show them your actual vaccine card uh, rather than um, some, some of these technologies, but the technologies are being developed and sold as the way in to find out everything about the people show up. So you show up, you show one of these at the bar. The bar doesn't just know whether you're vaccinated. They know your name. They probably know your age. They probably know your cohort. It's an information gathering tool for the for the 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 bar, um, but more importantly for the tech for the tech companies because they don't just have one business model. They have two. 
The first business model is helping bars or restaurants do this kind of bouncer thing. Um, but the second one is gathering information about you that they can sell in the data broker market. And, you know, we know that that data broker market is awful. It's bad. It's skeezy. It doesn't help us. It doesn't serve us. And it's full of mistakes that can impact us negatively. So the reason that EFF is concerned and does not support these kinds of technologies is frankly, they're two-faced. And while the first phase is trying to get us all to put this stuff on our phone and make sure we have it, the second phase is feeding this data broker market. And we think that there are better ways to figure out whether somebody is lying about whether they have a vaccine or not. But more importantly, this second business model is one that we all need to be concerned about. And you know, we, we've seen this over and over and over again. Tech rushes in when there's a crisis, when people are scared, when they want some kind of solution. And what they present to us may help us a little solve the problem in front of it. But always you got to look for what's the second? What's the second thing that they are doing? And so that's our concern about these kinds of passports. We're also concerned because most of them require you to have a smartphone. There's a, a whole huge piece of our society that does not have a smartphone and real-time digital, you know, digital broadband access. Um, and some of those people are the people at most risk for COVID. So again, it's also, I, I have questions about the solution just as a solution uh, for what we're trying to solve. If we're really trying to protect our most vulnerable people, those people are less likely to have smartphones, less likely to have access to the kind of technology. So we're we're not really even getting at the problem to begin with. Um, but we are creating, you know, the haves get into the bar and the haves nots don't. And, you know, we got enough of that problem in California. We don't need to make it worse. That ties into a question I had about uh, data, right, and the privacy of data. I know California has... Uh, uh, been a groundbreaker in terms of uh, passing more laws against uh, uh, protection of our data. Um, I'm not sure how the federal uh, laws are, but it does seem like this is an evergreen topic. You know, how safe is our data? How is tech using our uh, consumer data? How private is it? But it does feel like with this pandemic, you know, we've all been online more and it just feels like the data has been collected. Um, but then again, it does feel like maybe the average American doesn't know or doesn't care about how the state is being used, the lack of regulations over how it's being collected and used. So I am just wanted to ask you, has anything about this topic changed th during the pandemic? Uh, and if so, what should we know about it that will like, you know, maybe sink in in terms of the, our data being collected by technology companies? I mean, I think that, uh, you know, Californians have first, uh, you know, uh, had a have had two propositions, one that got withdrawn because a law was passed and a second one that passed overwhelmingly. Californians, when given the question, do you want us to do more to you want companies to do more to have to protect your privacy? The answer is yes. It's overwhelmingly yes. And then the, you know, the devil's in the details about how we do that. And sometimes we, you know, we disagree. We, we felt like the, the, the proposition that just got passed had too many loopholes in it. And so EFF was neutral on it. Um, but you, the lesson is loud and clear. Californians want to protect their privacy. They want more to be done to protect their privacy. And they expect us, and by that I mean lawmakers and, and, and other people, you know, but people like us who are advocates, to figure out how to do that right. Um, I think to a certain extent, we're, we're failing that. Um, I think the other thing we're often doing is blaming the victim, right? We're trying to say, well, you know, people who've given up because they feel like it's completely 
useless to try to protect their privacy. You know, they just don't care. Um, but I don't think that's true. I think that people care. They just feel helpless. And so, and they feel disempowered um, and there's good reason to feel that way, but there's, that also means that there's an opportunity to step up and take our power back and demand something better. And, and, you know, the, the, the good news is that, you know, California is moving in that direction. I, you know, I have um, very strong opinions about how they ought to, how we could move faster and better in that way, but it's not because the public doesn't care. I think the public has, has said that loud and clear. And frankly, national studies are the same. It's not that people don't care about their privacy. It's that they feel helpless. And, um, and that is, and I want to just hit this, um, there is this presumption that kids today don't care about their privacy and it's only, you know, older folks who do. The data is actually exactly opposite. Um, uh, uh, younger people are more likely to take control of their uh, privacy. They're more likely to adjust their privacy settings. They're more likely to take um, steps to try to protect themselves than older people. Um, and that's good news. Um, it's good news because it means that the, the generation that's coming up is already taking steps to try to protect their privacy and are going to be interested in taking more. And frankly, it's older people who are more likely to not change their settings, are not likely to not take control if you actually look at the data. Um, so, you know, and there's a whole industry whose it's in their interest to convince us that other people don't care about their privacy and you're the weird one if you do. Like, you can't dismiss that. Um, and so that's part of why people have this perception that, you know, kids today or other people don't care about their privacy. Um, so there's nothing we can do. So you feel helpless. And the, the, that, that that is a very dangerous thing for us to just accept because um, I don't think it's true. And there are things we can do if we got serious about it to try to protect our privacy better. Yeah. Yeah. On a federal level, I was going to ask, like I mentioned up top, it does seem like uh, the Biden administration has been appointing more people who have been very publicly critical of uh, big tech and where they're going. Congress uh, I saw has uh, recently voted, the House Judiciary Committee recently voted to advance some bills that aim to reduce the power of some dominant tech companies. So it seems like Washington, D.C. is taking a look at uh, Silicon Valley in a different way than it did before. What do you see happening in Washington, D.C. that would affect what's going on here in Sil or, you know, tech Silicon Valley and how that would affect us as consumers? Yeah, I mean, I think that we're um, there have been five bills that were introduced out of the Judiciary Committee to try to handle um, the problems of competition in big tech. And I think that competition and privacy are interwoven here. Right. Part of the reason we have such a problem with our personal privacy is that we have these, you know, big tech companies whose business model is collecting as much information about us being part of the data broker industry um, and using that. And Google and Facebook, of course, that's central to their business model. Um, and so that is their business model. It's not just central to it. That, that is their business model. And so um, I think that, the, you know, we're very supportive of the bills that are moving through Congress right now around increasing competition. And the one that we especially are interested in um, is the one that's focused on in creating more interoperability. One of the problems you have right now is if you're on Facebook, um, you know, you, your data got into Facebook because when you joined Facebook, they asked you if you wanted to upload your Google contacts, right? Your Gmail contacts. That's how the data got in. But Facebook's like a roach motel now, right? Your data goes in and it never comes out. And 
Um, so these are bills that are aimed at really taking advantage of the way the digital networks really work, right? You, 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 when you send email now, you don't need to send it to somebody who uses your same ISP or your same platform or your same email thing. It, it speaks a protocol um, that then lets it be handled by all the other companies, all the other email providers. They all speak email. Right. And um, the Internet was designed that way. And we've moved away from it. We've moved to these platform systems where your data goes in and it never goes out. This Roach Motel idea of Facebook. Um, So one of the ways out of this is to try to make sure that you can interact with your data, that your systems are interoperable with Facebook without you having to be all the way in to Facebook. Um, But also so you don't have to be all the way out. One of the big problems people have, I, I joke at this point that Facebook doesn't have customers, it has hostages, right? People people don't feel like they can leave. Their business is there, you know, the baby pictures of their college roommate or their friend from home are there. But people should be able to choose their own adventure on Facebook and uh, interoperate with it without having to be subject to all of Facebook's terms and conditions. So this is what interoperability is trying to do. And the reason it's interesting to us is because we think it takes advantage of some of the natural ways that the internet was developed and some of the ways that it used to work before we got these big five tech companies. So um, we're generally supportive, but this is the one that we find most interesting. We also don't have to change antitrust law in order to make interoperability work. And changing antitrust law is hard. It's definitely something we need to do for the digital age, but interoperability is something we could do right now. Um, with uh, some tweaks to some laws, but much smaller lift. So, because um, we think, and this circles back to, you know, we, we started by talking about privacy and then we ended up talking about competition. But part of the reason that we think that we need more competition is so that more privacy protective uh, business models or, you know, open source projects uh, or other um, systems um, can really make their way in this world right now. Um, And um, so we need some help uh, to to make competition flourish again online. And we think that'll be good for privacy. We think it'll be good for free speech. We think it'll be good for innovation, all the things that EFF cares about. Do you have a sense, uh, if you you can know, maybe it's too early to tell, about how uh, that bill will pass, if it will pass? Well, the interoperability bill has bipartisan support, but I think it's a long way from passing. Some of the other bills are much more, uh, much less partisan. Um, You know, one of the things that you observed is, you know, there are a lot of people in Congress who are not happy with the tech companies now, um, which normally would be a pretty good basis for something to happen. But the problem is that like half of Congress is mad at the tech companies for one reason. And the other half is mad at them for a completely opposed reason. So the Republicans are are upset with the tech companies because they feel like they're being censored too much. The Democrats are mad at the tech companies because they feel like they're they're censoring too little and allowing too much hate speech and misinformation to be out. So this is, um, while it's true, everybody hates Facebook, um, it's hard to come up with what a policy or legal solution would be when they're so diametrically opposed. And so that's why you see everybody pounding on Facebook, but no clear way forward is really emerging. Um, so, so I think that that's, that, that makes me, um, 
you know, you never know. And I, I never want to bet on what could come out of Washington, D.C. But when you see this story, it's it's hard to see what would come out that would really have bipartisan support, given the kind of, you know, it's not just that they differ. They're actually diametrically opposed in some of the reasons why they're mad at big tech. Um, that's also one of the reasons why the pro-competition strategy to me might have an inter- a different valence in, in this. Um, um, we're also seeing a lot of work we, it, it being done in Europe around all of these issues. And that may end up being the place where uh, the leadership comes from, um, because I think there's a lot less of this partisan divide and, um, you know, a little more general hating on California companies. Um, but, uh, the reasons aren't so diametrically opposed. And so we may see, you know, Europe has been a leader on privacy legislation. California's legislation kind of follows the GDPR, which was the European move. We're seeing a lot of conversations around increasing competition in Europe, um, as well that, that seem to be moving forward a little faster than things federally. Yeah, and I, if I remember correctly, I think this year, earlier this year, in Australia, there was a, a battle over uh, the news articles that people got on Facebook, and and um, uh, the news companies were like, "We pr- we produce those. Where's the revenue?" And did, I, I I don't know the specifics, but it did seem like Australia won this battle where Facebook has to, there has to be some revenue share. And because Facebook didn't produce the news article, they, they, people read it though, but the news companies got the money. It just seemed like something where like, okay, maybe that's the start of something where uh, one industry that has been decimated by tech in in many ways is the uh, newspapers uh, and media. Uh, Do you see that as a, a step forward that might change something? Well, I, I think the Australia example to me is an example of everybody agreeing on a problem and then rushing to a really awful solution, right? Um, everybody agrees that there are uh, there are difficulties with in, in journalism right now and that the way Facebook has been running its business, specifically Facebook, but Google as well, um, has a role to play and it's a role that we need to interrogate. The problem with what Australia did was they basically just made Google and Facebook pay Murdoch. Right. Um, I'm not sure shifting money from one giant tech company to a giant media conglomerate is the right way to think about how we fix journalism. Um, and that's why it happened in Australia. Right. Uh, Murdoch. Right. It's the power. Talking about, yeah. Rupert Murdoch. Rupert Murdoch and Fox News. You know, the, the Rupert Murdoch enterprise of which, you know, the Fox News is one of the major things. He's a he's a very he's an Australian guy. He's a very important player in Australia. So this was, I think, um, a really unfortunate Again, just because everybody agrees on the problem doesn't mean that every answer is the right answer. And I think the Australian model is a terrible example. If you really want to support the broad spectrum of media um, and a wide range of views, I don't think you cram down a law that makes, you know, Apple have to pay Rupert, Rupert Murdoch money. Um, I don't think that's the right answer. Um, and in fact, I think it's a it's a it's itself problematic. Um, so, and we see this a lot. There's a lot of proposals for how we handle big tech that EFF as a civil liberties group and as a group that normally champions the voices of marginalized people and the people who are left out of these conversations, uh, we may agree very heartily about the problem, uh, but the solutions are really 
bad ideas. Um, and there's a set of them now that, that have a lot of credence that uh, we spend a lot of time. It's sometimes it's no fun to be a civil liberties person because you show up and you say, you know, I agree with you about the problem, but your solution's a disaster. Like nobody wants that person at the party, but um, it's the role that we have to play because we don't just care about identifying problems. We care about finding solutions that'll work. And I wanted to go back to, um, you had mentioned about why Congress is uh, opposed to big tech, but they're diamet- diametrically uh, opposite sides. Uh, the the censorship um, um, ties into the question I had, I guess, about a buzzword that a lot of people have been hearing more uh, in 2020, uh, misinformation and how misinformation comes into play when it comes to telling people about vaccines, the election 2020. And uh, and then there was the recent brouhaha, uh, uh, Joe Biden versus Facebook about uh, misinformation, uh, what's authoritative, authoritative information. And I'm just curious, what what's your take and what's EFF's take on the the this battle over what is misinformation and what is freedom of expression um are social platforms doing too little too much or just enough to control what's said on their sites like what can be done is it a business model uh question where you know that has to be uh changed so that something is is done to address it well i think a couple of things one is i think that um I think that it kind of comes back to scale again in terms of are the companies doing enough? Um, Content moderation at scale is really hard and the companies suck at it. But frankly, I don't think it's personal to them very much. It's really hard to do, to moderate what people say and what they mean at scale in these huge, huge companies and have it work, right? Um, um, And there's lots of reasons for that. One of them is our language is fluid. So we don't say things the same way every single time. In fact, we we shift how we say things and the symbols and things that used to mean one thing now mean another. We've all lived in these times. Um, and so the algorithms and the people who do this, like they're always going to struggle to keep up um, and they're always going to do it poorly. You know, we hear from people all the time who get kicked off of, I have a, you know, somebody who recently got kicked off of Facebook saying, you know, I love my friends. I would murder for them. Right. Um, This person is not talking about planning a murder, but Facebook's algorithms can't tell the difference um, or at least didn't in this particular time. So um, content moderation at scale is hard. It's one of the reasons why we think um, having more competition. So there isn't just one place where all this stuff gets said might help, because if you shrink the scale a little, um, you, you might be able to do a better job. And if you let communities really have a voice and you have real processes in this, um, you can do better. And, and one of the companies that really used to have a big problem with this, and I think it's fair to say is doing significantly better, is Reddit. Um, California company um, that used to be really just us, you know, had a real problem with um, uh, hate speech, misinformation, those kinds of things, and really kind of got a handle on it. And I I, I think that some of that has to do with um, them taking it seriously, but some of it had to do with the fact that they're just smaller in terms of in terms of the the community. Um, So that's one thing I think. The other thing I think, while, you know, I I certainly... um, you know, I, I joke sometimes that I was mad at Facebook before most people knew who they were. Um, uh, but um, I, I think that, uh, you know, with all due respect to the president, you know, the the tech company's role in the misinformation inf- universe is important, but it's really not the biggest role 
and the biggest role, um, at, you know, there's research that has been done by um, a guy named Yochai Benkler at Harvard, as long as other people. It's when nationally prominent voices lift up misinformation that it spreads. So the fact that, you know, some people on Facebook are saying things that aren't true, like, you know, that's not what causes this to spread. What causes it to spread is the big broadcasters like Fox News, like the former president, big famous people uplifting these lies is what makes them spread. It what makes them stick and it it's what makes them so intransigent. So if you're just targeting Facebook, I don't think you're seeing the whole story. Um, and if you're not seeing the whole story, I think you're limited. You're 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 missing some of the things that um, you could put bring into play to try to combat it. You know, um, people saying dumb things um, uh, and having a small community of people who believe things that aren't true. You know, that way predates the internet. Um, and and again, I don't mean to belittle or or to 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 not recognize that the role of the giant tech companies uh, play in this, but they're not the reason that people believe misinformation. You know, I, I grew up, you know, you could always get the national Enquirer at the checkout stand of every uh, at every grocery store. Um, and I think most of us understood that that was entertainment, not news. Right. But there were always some people who thought it was news. Right. I mean, so this idea that there is big money in peddling misinformation is not a technical idea. It's a pre-technical idea. And our solutions need to look at the whole thing. Another topic uh, that's been coming up, I, I guess, in people's minds in a way that it never had before is uh, cyber attacks and ransomware and spyware. Uh, and uh, now we know the company SolarWinds. Uh, and, and we saw how this could affect people uh, personally uh, earlier this year, right? The shutdown of the, the meat packing, packing plant and the, the, the gas line that just, oh. So that made me as just, a, as just a regular person think, wow, is this something that we have to brace ourselves for more? And every time there's a power outage now or you know, Comcast shuts down, is it a global attack by some, uh, you know, spy or some government? So I'm wondering, this also does seem like a bane uh, for Silicon Valley, but a boon as well. I read a story that venture capital money is now pouring into cybersecurity startups. Um, so there's a there's a business model there. But what what do you forecast for this, you know, cybersecurity realm? Um, and what should we and can we do anything about it as just, you know, regular users? What do you, what's the future? Well, I think that it's definitely the case that um, as all of us depend on these digital networks and digital systems for everything. And as you point out, you know, you know, uh, you know, gasoline, um, you know, home heating oil, you know, it, it's, you know, our healthcare hospitals, you know, it's the digital um, threat space is much, much bigger than it, it might've been, you know, in the nineties when EFF was getting started. Um, and it's also true that we have a lot of security problems. Like it's hard to build secure software. Um, it's even, you know, the, the, it's, it's the attacker almost always has the advantage. Um, and that's just the reality that we kind of have to live with. However, we have done so little to make, you know, 
cybersecurity, something that actually protects people in their homes and in their everyday activities. The United States government um, and governments around the world have spent a tremendous amount on offense, being able to attack other countries around the world and play the spy game as, as the top spies, and relatively little on actually defending us. I mean, it's, the numbers are outrageous. I don't have them at my top of my hand, but it's, it's like three to four to one. Um, and we need to shift that around. We need to start investing in defending us and defending our networks and building and incentivizing building more secure software. Um, you know, one of the worst areas right now is one of the newest, the Internet of Things, right? These home connected um, cameras and refrigerators and all of this stuff. That, that stuff is built with, without strong security. You know, Amazon Ring sold people these cameras for their homes that, that didn't have end-to-end -end security. Um, now they've started to implement it. That's great, but they should have done it from the beginning. And, you know, it's hard to tack on security once you've rolled these kinds of things out. So we need to really build up both the incentives for building more secure technologies and the consequences and accountability for not doing that. And we don't do either of those right now. Um, you know, the, 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 the model of building a lot of these technologies is build it as cheaply as possible and sort out the problems later. Um, you know, that's not how we build airplanes. Um, that's not how we build cars. That's not how we build other things that people have people's lives in their hands. We need, we need to develop um, uh, better requirements for building more secure systems and for upgrading the security of systems that you've already deployed. Um, but the second piece of this is the one that, um, and that's all true. And one of the big obstacles to that right now is that the US government and governments around the world are extremely hostile to one of the best security tools we could have, which is end-to-end -end encryption, strong encryption. Um, encrypting our, you know, when our messages go up into iCloud or, you know, to Facebook, they should be encrypted. They should be sitting there in a form that makes them very, very hard to access without us being involved. Um, but they're not. And they're, they're not in part because the FBI has strong armed companies like Apple and other people against providing us with real security. And the reason they do that is because they want to be the top spies. They want to be the people who can solve crimes once they happen. But, um, you know, I think that's really short sighted. You know, let, let's just assume that the police came around to your front door and said, look, you know, we've got some burglars on the loose. Um, so in case you're a burglar, we want to make sure that you don't have a really strong lock on your door and that we can always get in because, you know, that way we can solve the crime. If there are burglar, if there's a burglar around you, you would look at them and say, go figure out how to do your job in a way that doesn't leave me unsafe. You know, that's not the right way to do policing. Um, but that's what's happening in our digital world. In the digital world, the FBI and law enforcement around the world are basically trying to retard the growth and development of strong encryption um, to protect all of us um, around the world. And, you know, that we, we saw this a few years ago when the FBI was demanding that Apple you know, break the security of an iPhone in the context of an investigation in this after the San Bernardino terrorist attack. Um, they wanted Apple to dumb down the security of iPhones so that they could always be sure to get into an iPhone. And Apple said, rightly, like, we're not going to dumb down everybody's security 
that's not the right trade-off in terms of, of keeping people safe. And by the way, if we dumb down the security, you know, our iPhone doesn't know whether you're the FBI or the Chinese government or a, a, a set of, you know, cybersecurity thieves. It, it can't tell the difference. So if we dumb down the security, we're not only letting you in, we could be letting in much more malicious characters. And so we're not going to do it. And that was a huge fight. Um, Apple ended up winning that fight, but the FBI hasn't gone away. They come back and they pound the table about how strong encryption is dangerous because it stops them from solving crimes and don't recognize that strong encryption is important for all of our security. So that's the first thing. And then I'm sorry, this is a long answer because I'm very passionate about this. Um, the second thing is that we need real accountability. When these tools fail and keep us insecure, insecure we need to be able to hold those companies to account. And this is an area where our law has really failed us. Uh, we don't have strong remedies for privacy invasions. We don't have uh, strong ways for you. You know, if, 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 a, if a car manufacturer builds a car and it fails in ways that hurt you and your family, they have to pay. And that's part of what gives them the incentive to build safe cars. But that's not say, that, that's not really true for your software in the same way. The kinds of remedies that people have access to if their privacy is violated or their you know, health records are jeopardized um, are very weak. Um, and that's an area where Congress and, and the and California legislature really needs to protect us. They need to step up and protect us. And the Supreme Court, frankly, needs to get out of the way. But that's a whole other story. This is already a long answer. I know there's so much to ask you about, but I do want to be mindful of time. So I'm going to I'm going to uh, cherry pick a couple more questions here for you. One is California specific. Uh about a funding that our Governor Gavin Newsom just approved and signed uh, about expanding uh, our broadband infrastructure. And I know uh, the EFF is uh, in support of that. They call it California's broadband destiny. So I wanted to ask you, what is the significance? What is the importance of this funding for broadband infrastructure and how it benefit how it benefited us? And do you think it will happen? Because sometimes the government doesn't move at the speed of a startup to get things moving. But uh, what are your what are your thoughts on the, the rollout? Well, we are very excited about this decision, and the governor deserves um, a lot of credit for recognizing that Californians need strong broadband and um, and taking some of our budget surplus and and putting it towards making sure that we have um, strong broadband. This has been one of EFF's priorities for a long time. My colleague and Ernesto Falcone was just tireless in pushing for this. Um, and it's one of the things that COVID gave us was a political opportunity to really you know, move forward on this. So we are very, very excited about this prospect. And it's been done in ways that um, we think are really smart. One of them is it's really aimed at empowering local public entities, um, communities, municipalities to run these broadband services. So we're not just shoveling money at AT&T and Verizon and Comcast who have failed us uh, in really providing broad, uh, broadband access for people. And, you know, it was just so pathetic at the beginning of COVID to see, you know, Verizon giving people little hotspots, you know, as if that was like going to help in broadband, you know, and, and seeing the kids in the McDonald's parking lot trying to do their homework and 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 all, all that these giant well-funded tech companies could do was try to like hand out hotspots to teachers. I mean, this is just, it, it's pathetic. And um, I 
I really appreciate that the, you know, um, the, 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 the state has really tried to empower local communities and municipalities in this. Um, there's a 750 million loan loss reserve program to enable municipalities and county governments to issue broadband bonds to finance their own fiber. There's $2 billion in grants for unserved pockets of the state. So we're thinking both about, you know, I talk about municipalities, we're thinking about where people live, but also rural areas. California has gigantic rural areas. And both of these are broadband deserts. The rural areas are broadband deserts, but also urban areas are often broadband deserts. And the, the, the program really is attempting to try to address both of these. Um, so we think it's got a very good chance, you know, could it be undermined? Yeah, it could. Um, but it's set up to try not to be. Um, and we're certainly going to be supporting and watching every step of the way. I mean, this is an area where, you know, residents in local communities who want to make sure that they have options, you know, th that are real options for broadband ought to get involved locally and make sure that this really happens. It's going to take us making sure it happens. I'm sure that the lobbyists for AT&T and Verizon and Comcast are not happy about this and they're not going to go away. Um, but we really do need to, um, we need people to step up. And this is an area where, you know, the money's there. Um, and so for local people who want to make sure that they really have broadband, like that big obstacle has been solved. So they need to really get involved with your mayor and your city council and say, we need municipal broadband. We need locally controlled broadband so that we can really serve our whole communities. Um, and, um, and, and we think that there great things could happen. Of course it could go wrong. Um, but it really is, um, you know, I spend a lot of time dumping on governments for not doing the right thing or for doing it poorly or for building something wrong. This is an area, this is, this is one where we're quite excited at the way this has been rolled out so far and, um, and think that it could show, it could really be a sea change for people of California. Yeah. That sounds like definitely like you mentioned a, 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 a technology upside that the pandemic st started. So it'll be interesting to see how that rolls out. And then, yeah, my last question for you is, uh, Again, just this uh, the pandemic induced technology use that we that we have uh, all been using um, for better and for worse. I know that the EFS has they call this uh, some of this technology disciplinary technology, and I I, I will put on our on the uh, podcast page a resource guide. I'll list to the uh, the page you have about disciplinary technologies and what your uh, strategy is. So I want to I want to ask you about that. I guess it's more like a, an advice for us that you would give to us when we're using Zoom and TikTok and, and Facebook still and, you know, Twitter and all this stuff um, where there is more. Um, it sounds like we're being monitored more in our, our daily work life school routines with the use of this technology. What should we be aware of? What should we do more of, less of, uh, just to um, protect our, our, our privacy and our digital freedom? Yeah, I think that um, disciplinary tech is kind of a, 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 a a word that we we a phrase that we've used to try to capture a bunch of things that have really gone on to overdrive during the pandemic. Um, one of them is uh, forcing school kids um, all the way from little children to you know uh, graduate students, college students to run software on their computers that is aimed at trying to figure out whether they're cheating or not. Um, and the problem with this technology is that it's pretty bad. 
Um, it, it's discriminatory. You know, some of this involves facial recognition software that um, people of color have had a really hard time uh, because the facial recognition software doesn't recognize them. So, you know, no school kid should be forced to basically try to convince a piece of technology on their computer that they're really there, right? I mean, this is just it's wrong. Um, and some of the disciplinary tech, we, we helped a bunch of students at Dartf Dartmouth's um, dental school who got um, accused of cheating uh, because their computers were pinging uh, a school run system called Canvas, where uh, lessons are um, periodically just to make sure it's alive. And that got treated as if they were cheating on tests. And it, it took a huge push by us and lots of others and an outcry before Dartmouth backed down. Um, but it was going to discipline these students based upon something that they had no control over that, you know, that the technology that was trying to track them did not understand. Understand. Um, so these systems are being rolled out. They're not ready for prime time. And, and the way that they're failing is discriminatory and problematic. And, um, you know, the, it, it definitely matters. We certainly don't want people cheating. Um, but again, the, the, the approach to trying to solve the real problem is way overbroad um, and unfair. Um, and the other area that we think about disciplinary tech is really where we talk about spouseware and spyware. And this is another thing that we think has gone up a lot during the pandemic, um, which is basically uh, uh, domestic violence, domestic abuse um, uh, going up because uh, partners are putting spyware on each other's devices, uh, mobile devices and computers to try to figure out what they're doing. And, and for, you know, a woman who's trying to escape abusive household, it's hard enough in the pandemic. It's much, much harder if her, her partner or husband is spying on her through her, uh, uh, through her device. The back-end technology for this kind of spying, whether it's in the domestic in situation or in the school situation or in other situations for workers, it's the same technology. That's why, you know, we look at it, we combine these things together because spying on people through their own devices, whether it's done by your employer or your school or your abusive husband, it, it works pretty much the same way on the back-end. And we need to think hard about these. Our devices need to answer to us. They shouldn't have a secondary uh, spying on us tool. And whether that's, you know, Facebook spying on us to try to figure out where, you know, what we want to buy or abusive husbands spying on us, it's the same problem in terms of the way the tech works. And we really do need to, people need to embrace, and we need to embrace the idea that it's my computer, it's my phone, I get to decide what goes on it. And other people don't get to force me to put technology on this that spies on me. I can't, I can't let you leave without asking you a philosophical question. I love to end on a philosophical question. Like what's the future of, I'm wondering what the future of Silicon Valley is because you have watched it for 30 years uh, with the EFF. And we had talked a little bit before we hit record button about, you know, Silicon Valley, the rise and fall, ups and downs, ebbs and waves. Uh, this pandemic throws a loop into everything. So I'm just wondering, you know, with all the stuff that we've talked about, uh, Silicon Valley always seems to change and adapt. What are what do you see? I don't know if you have any thoughts about um, the rise and fall of Silicon Valley. Is it going to be a different kind of rise and fall? Will uh, it bounced back in a different way. I don't know your your philosophical thoughts on the future. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not a very good future predictor. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't be a civil liberties lawyer if I was that. But I think that I think there are a couple of things that I'm I'm you know I think we are at an inflection point, and whether we if we decide to try to bring more innovation and more competition into tech, we could have a much different future than if we just all resign ourselves that, you know, that's going to be Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and Microsoft forever. Um, and we have the power to decide which direction we go here. I think if we go to the hegemony of the current five people, we're going to see fewer innovations and those innovations aren't really going to be ones that benefit us as users. They're going to be ones that benefit the companies um, or maybe in their little spy versus spy versus each other, right? We're all the, you know, we're all just the, the, the chaff and that the, you know, the real players are the, the big men of industry. Um, and I think that dynamic is very dangerous and it, it's bad. You know, people thinking that Silicon Valley is just, you know, Elon Musk versus Jeff Bezos versus Tim Cook. Um, there, uh, you know, there are thousands and hundreds of thousands of us who build technology, care about technology and are passionate about technology. And we deserve our voices to be heard too. And this narrative of the big men, and frankly, they almost are all men, the big men of tech as being the story of tech is really dangerous and broken. And I think it's up to us. And by us, I mean the people in California who love technology, want it to serve us, care about it, to break out of this narrative and, and bring all the rest of us into the conversation. That was the original promise of the internet, right? That a random person sitting at home in front of their computer who had a good idea could reach an audience that was greater than they could ever reach before, could communicate and correspond with, you know, nobody's around the world who also thought hard about this kind of stuff. Like that's what the technology freed us to do. Um, and that's all still there. Um, it's just getting overshadowed by the public narrative. And, you know, we have already good institutions that start with this. We've got the Internet Archive based here in San Francisco. We've got Wikimedia based here in San Francisco. We've got, you know, lots of what we call the public interest Internet, uh, a lot of the open source communities as well. Um, they're there, Tor, Signal, um, the technologies that are built by people who are passionate about trying to make the world better, they're still here. They just get overshadowed in the national narrative and the international narrative, and sometimes even in the California narrative. So to me, the brighter future turns on us kind of lowering the volume on our tech giants and raising the volume on all the rest of us. Well, Cindy Cohen, thank you very much for breaking down a very sometimes convoluted uh, industry and topic, but uh, um, I feel optimistic after talking with you. So I appreciate your time and thanks for talking again with us. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a pleasure. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers, This Changes Everything, episode 19, which was recorded on July 28th, 2021. Thanks to Cindy Cohen of the Electronic Frontier Foundation for joining us. Thanks to podcast listener and Groundbreaker donor Cheryl Mather for sending us some financial support. And of course, thanks to you for listening. If you find our podcasts worth listening to in these topsy-turvy times, please make a donation and support our efforts to produce informative and inspiring conversations about what Californians should expect in the post-pandemic future. You can do that as well as keep tabs on upcoming podcast episodes, events, and other information about us by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.